as a person who, you know, has a history of mental illness in their family, right? And also a history of substance abuse, right? I was already playing with fire. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site, to the equipment, to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Depression Files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm excited. Today on the line we have Evan Whitehead. Evan is the Director of Special Services at a public school district in Illinois, and he is a national consultant and public speaker. Evan, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing, Al? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Evan, I was so excited when we connected. I know you're in a leadership role in a school district. I know you are a uh, a staunch mental health advocate and and advocate particularly around a lot of the same issues as myself. So I was so excited to meet you uh, online in Twitterland. Definitely so. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely some of the same on um, the similar things that I think both of us have in terms of our philosophies and also advocacy in terms of mental health. Yeah. So I'm really uh, looking forward to our conversation. You have dealt with several different uh, mental illnesses and I believe, and you can tell me if I got this right, anxiety, depression, ADHD, you've dealt with substance abuse and also trauma as well as some suicidal ideation. Yeah, that that's correct. You know, um, and all in different stages of my life, you yeah. know, that everything wasn't all at once. But, um, you know, as you know, the thing about, you know, mental health and mental illness, a lot of them are coexisting conditions, right? Absolutely. And, um, you know, for me, a lot of my diagnoses came as an adult. So not as not as a youth. Okay. Um, but as I but as I look back, you know, in terms of my history and my life, there were definitely indicators okay. um, of that. But, you know, it didn't really come to a point where it manifests itself, manifests itself to a point where I needed a diagnosis until I was until I was an adult. Gotcha. Gotcha. So as a child, do you are there things that stand out to you in hindsight? Like, yeah, wow, that was something that I did that was a clear indicator in hindsight or did was any of the trauma that you experienced as a child? 
I would I would say, um, you know, a lot of it uh, stemmed from trauma, you know, um, different different traumatic experiences. You know, um, of now there's a lot of talk about ACEs, you know, at, you know, adverse child experiences and what that is and what that looks like, yeah. you know, and in a rating scale. And, you know, the reality is there are more people that that have traumatic experiences than they think, um, especially when you begin to define it and be able to put, you know, words to it. And, you know, as I look back on my life and growing up, you know, I had traumatic experiences, even though I didn't think they were at maybe necessary at the time, because it's one of those things you just kind of push through and can get through. Right. right. And, um, and specifically, you know, culturally, and we'll probably talk a little bit later, but as an African-American man in African-American culture, it's, it's really taboo to talk about mental health, you know, mental illness. Yeah. Oh, I definitely want to get into that. And I appreciate you being willing to speak about that as well. So looking back in your childhood, are there any things that were, that you are able to share with us about trauma? I mean, what was your family life like? Did you grow up with siblings, two-parent household, yeah. and was it an urban situation you were living in or in the suburbs? So, so um, I had both parents. Both parents worked, um, you know, grew up in, in, in a suburban setting, you know, and I would say that in terms of some of the traumatic experiences, you know, you know, like just being in certain environments such as we, we moved a lot when I was younger. Okay. Um, so a lot of, a lot of mobility in terms of different apartments, um, going to place to place. I went to a lot of different schools. Um, you know, also, you know, um, I did grow up in a household where, um, there was, um, substance abuse as well, um, through my father, you know, now he is, he's clean and sober, he's recovering, but you know, that type of environment, you know, when I was growing up, I thought that was a norm, right? Because, you know, a lot of my friends had similar situations, you know, a lot of my other family members, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, the use of substance, whether it's alcohol, you know, drugs, um, it was just kind of, it was accepted. So I didn't think that that was something that was out of the norm, obviously, until I got older. But knowing that in terms of growing up in a situation like that, you know, a lot of my work now that I talk about has to do with risk and protective factors. Okay. And also it also has to do about bonding and attachment styles. Right. And, you know, as you know, like when you have a parent or parents that either have mental health issues or substance abuse issues, you have a bonding and attachment style that is safe and dangerous. Right. right? Because it's it's unpredictable. Yeah. So, you know, one minute they could be the best parent in the world and care for you. But then if either they're unstable in their mental illness or if they're using, mm -hmm. um, they could either have a totally different mood and, you know, a swing that you can't quite understand as a child. Right. So you're always on edge. You, you don't know what to expect. The only thing that you can expect is that things will be unpredictable. So, um, you know, that's that's those are kind of some of the key points in terms of some of my experiences. Also, you know, what I what I learned as an as an, in an older age, you know, going through therapy that, um, you know, I did not realize. But, you know, 
the sheer um, idea of um, any instances of racism or prejudice that you deal with right. are also traumatic experiences. Yeah. So, so I, I dealt with a lot of those um, at an early age because, you know, of the community that I grew up in, um, you know, it was, it was kind of diverse, but, but also it wasn't, it wasn't majority African-American right. either. So, so I can, you know, I'll tell you one of my first experiences with racism head on, I was probably about seven or eight years old. And I had a best friend at the time who, you know, we were very good friends. You know, his, his, his mother and my mother worked together. And, um, you know, my dad was, was his baseball coach. He was on my baseball team. He'd come over all the time. We'd play, we'd hang out, you know, and uh, his parents were divorced. So he lived with his mom and he'd visit his dad on the weekend. And one time after coming back from visiting his dad on the weekend, he came back and told me, I can't play with you anymore because my dad said, I can't play with you because your dad is black. Wow. Right. So like, right. Imagine that seven or eight. You know, like you don't you think that, you know, like your friends, right? You don't you you don't pay attention to that type of thing. And, you know, like to me, it 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 caught me off guard because obviously I look like my dad, right? So if my dad is black, I'm black, right? Right. right. But but that's it's I just, you know, go up to think about that because you know, adults have a lot more influence than they sometimes think. For sure. And you see how like the negativity of an adult can totally transform a child's thinking yeah. it's because they have so much influence. And then even the, the fact that the way that was phrased to my friend so that he could say it to me, right, shows that there was intent behind those words right. from the adult. And, you know, I was I was confused. Um, you know, I didn't understand. So I went to I told my dad, obviously he wasn't happy, but he, you know, he basically, that was my first life lesson where I had to learn, you know, that the world is not kind. Right. Yeah. And, and even, even as an innocent child, right. It's an instance in which you have to experience something that you shouldn't have to experience anyway, yeah. but definitely not as a child. And those are, and those are pretty much, you know, those that's, that's what trauma is, right. It's, it's especially, you know, in childhood and in, in, in adverse experiences, oh, like, and, and at right. Age, at age seven, like right? just to try to process that, even yes. though your dad yes. went through it with you, it's still right. like, does this mean I'm a bad person? Like yes. this kid can't like yes. me. And then yes. is my dad bad because he's a black yes. man? And right. I can't even imagine how painful and confusing that had to have been. Extremely, extremely. And, you know, and what you carry with you from that point yes. on because you are yes. so impressionable. Yes, you know, and that's and that's what, you know, a lot of times people don't understand in terms of, you know, the talk about trauma and in and, and the ACEs, adverse child experiences, is that that moment in time shapes you and right. it and it and it. And it creates a pathway and not only the way in which, you know, others potentially view you, but also the way you view yourself. So now, you know, you have you already begin to view the world in a certain way and you become very protective. You become guarded. Right. You 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 try now you have to try to figure all this out and it's tough. Um, So that that was definitely traumatic experience for me. The other one was that, you know, when I was younger, I always, you know, was was pretty bright kid, but I just learned differently. Right. Like mm-hmm. the, the way my brain process was different. So like the, like a traditional approach for learning 
you know, didn't work for me or instructional style didn't work for me. And I remember probably second grade and I had a math teacher who was very rigid. And, you know, I believe we were going through like math facts, you know, and times tables. And, you know, I remember her teaching style was so rigid. It was almost militaristic in which, you know, we're going to do these times tables. You got a certain amount of time. Right. And if you don't get it, you're going to go back again and you're not going to go back again. And for me, I didn't operate well under that type of pressure. Right. Right. And so, like, the more that uh, a time restraint and pressure was put on me, the the more I shut down and I couldn't I couldn't respond. So I so I began to think that I was not a good student, like I wasn't smart. Right. Because of because of that. So that also created a math phobia for me for quite some time. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, you know, that's another experience where, you know, people don't always think about, oh, that's, you know, is that really trauma? Well, yeah, it is. Because now if you think about it, now you have a fear of something and you react, you react in a certain way to protect yourself every time you experience that. So for me, as in terms of from an academic standpoint, I had this mindset that I wasn't good at math. So I would try to avoid, you know, challenging myself in math for quite some time right. because I just didn't want to go through that and ex- and relive that potential experience again. Yeah, um, <clears throat> that makes so much sense. And, and we have so many learners who are like that today right like right kids who literally will avoid math because they don't feel successful in it so they're the kids Mm -hmm. who say they need to go to the bathroom and they're gone for 15 20 minutes or they're acting out because they don't want to be you know seen as not as smart as the rest of the group so yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense and i like how you you mentioned earlier about the impact of like your friend's father and the words of adults and i'm trying to remind educators that all the time because our words are so powerful and you know and adults make we make mistakes and we get frustrated with kids and we have our own tempers that we have to maintain and manage and frustrations but man what we say to kids can impact them lifelong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've met people who say they're a writer because there was one teacher who believed they could write, even though nobody else thought they could. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was the the words of that positive teacher that sent them on a positive trajectory. And I know that happens negatively as well. Kids who won't write because they've been right. told they are bad at writing from day one. You know, and right. We have to be so careful about that as educators. So, you know, you mentioned your dad was a abusing substance. Was there physical or verbal abuse that came along with a substance abuse? Yeah, yeah, you know what? And you know, and back as I said, you know, we've come we've come such a long way in terms of how we begin to interpret things, right? And and how we 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 openly discuss it. Yeah. You know, you know, at that time I wouldn't have thought it was, but you know, as I became more educated and learned about myself, yes, it was right. right. Just seeing, just seeing, right. Because anytime there's substance, right. There's an imbalance. Yeah. And then there's, if, you know, typically there's already an existing imbalance. So you're trying to self-medicate for yeah. whatever reason. Absolutely. So like, so like what happens is, you know, you have like, 
you know, these rages, right? Or, you know, if you're either coming down off of being something yeah. or on, on something or what have you, right? Your mood is going to swing. Yeah. So I, so even though my, my dad was very loving, like there was never any physical abuse, but like sometimes it would be kind of those, um, just like the microaggressions, right? right. That, that that would happen, or you know, he'd just be irritable, you know, because yeah. either he was hungover or recovering, whatever, and didn't want to be bothered. Or the other side is, you know, if you're not able to to get your drug of choice, you become irritable, right? right? So it's, I, you know, even though you know, I know it wasn't directed personally to me. There were times in which I remember either seeing that. Right. Seeing him say that or, or act a certain way or either it was directed towards me um, during that time. But, you know, that definitely that's that's the t- it was, you know, there were times in the environment, as I said, going back to the bonding and attachment style where it's safe and dangerous. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned the unpredictability. And I see that with some of the parents we deal with. Yeah. And and a lot of the teachers know which parents are kind of like that. And it's like you catch them on the right day or at the right time and mm-hmm. you can have a great conversation. They're supportive, even if they're mm-hmm. you know frustrated and whatnot. And other times where you just can't understand them because they're so right. dysregulated or they're just so angry and yelling and screaming at us. Mm-hmm. And I often then do, at least these days, really reflect on the poor child that's going home to that unpredictable household. And like you said, I know they're loving parents and they're doing the best they can. And substance abuse is an illness, right? And and hopefully as a school, we're able to help get to the point where they're open to resources and help them find resources to help them as well as the kids. Because so many of our families need support as well. So, so I get, you know, some of the trauma you had as a kid. What about anxiety, depression? Did these come along later in your life? Or, I mean, even the, the volatility you mentioned in a home living with someone with substance abuse, I would think would boost one's anxiety, right? Like you might be going home. I think about that for our kids that I work with in school today, like they go home and, and they're probably wondering, all right, what's Ma going to look like today? Or dad, you know, are they going to be, you know mentally fine today or are they drinking or what's going on? Right. You know, um, I would say that, you know, in my experience that I had, you know, it was, it was anxiety, right. Feeling very anxious, you know, and there were other things, you know, just like, you know, substance abuse and use, right. There are other manifestations of that, right. One, it affects you um, not only emotionally and physically, but also financially, right? So, you know, as I said, we moved around a lot, you know, so there would be times when, you know, now that I look back, probably there was a reason why we had to move. It was probably because our lease wasn't renewed, right? Or we broke our lease, you know, never to the point where we were evicted and stuff was on the, you know, out on on the lawn or anything like that or the grass. But I'm guessing there was a reason why, you know, I I remember, I remember there were times when, you know, the lights were not on. Right. Wow. And, you know, the power was off or the phone was disconnected, you know, so like things like that. Yes, that, you know, that it would it caused me to be anxious at times because, you know, I'm hoping. But then like, you know, the other part is, you know, you don't know when it's going to happen. Then and then once again, well, how long? Like, you know, and those are things that as 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 a child, 
you shouldn't have to worry about like, wow, when are the lights going to get back on? Yeah. Right. Or or what, you know, when's the phone going to be back on or, you know, or how do you explain if your if your phone is not on or, you know, what have you? Right. You know, I, I, re- I remember doing homework and, you know, with candles burning. Wow. I, you know, yeah. Like, you know, and this is and, and I and I say that not to not to, you know, try to um romanticize it, but to just be realistic in terms of what the face of of mental health or substance abuse can look like. Because my father was, you know, college educated, right? right? right. He had you know, had a college degree, you know, he was a professional and but the reality is there are still things that, you know, can creep in. That's why, you know, there's no such thing as a functioning addict. Right. 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 There's, there's no such thing because something has to give. So, you know, even though there was there was a lot of love in my household, there are there, there were things that 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 I remember clearly that did cause me to be anxious. And I would say that, um, you know. I also had a, you know, very short temper. Right. And, you know, now as I as you know, as an older as an older person and obviously through therapy, I, you know, now I understand, now I understand that for males and men, right. Anxiety often manifests itself in anger. Yeah. Right. Versus. So, so now some of that energy that I had, that would be anger where I'd have some of the, you know, some of the, the anger issues, you know, probably stem from a lot of things that, that happened or were going on in my life, but it manifests itself um, in that way. Right. Right. Depression, too, can especially yep. for men come out in anger. Yep. So how old were you when you got your first diagnosis? So, man, I, I I did not. When I say an adult, I mean literally an adult. Like, I mean, probably, oh, my gosh, um, late 30s. And that was and that was that was my diagnosis of ADHD. OK. Right. Um, so it was like mid to late thirties. Um, and you know, what's interesting is, is that, you know, even though I was in the, I was in the special education field, right. And I was very, very educated in terms of ADHD and what it looks like and, you know, symptoms, signs, et cetera. You know, I never really, I never really diagnosed myself, so to speak, right. or to think that I possibly did that. And there's a couple of reasons for that is because one, you know, in terms of the field of special education, when you when you think about um, being eligible for an individualized education plan or an IEP, right, there usually has to be a discrepancy in terms of that that handicap or disability causing challenges, right? Right. In terms of academics, yeah. that was never the problem for me, right? I always like scored very high on standardized tests. Right. I was in a gifted track for many, many years. And when I got in high school, you know, same thing, you know, honors classes, you know, gifted track. So like it wasn't so really I would never consider myself having a disability and let alone ADHD because it never really it never never really affected me academically. However, it did affect me in terms of, you know, organization. Right. In terms of. Um, sometimes motivation or preferred versus non-preferred activities, right? So when you start thinking about, you know, those type of pieces, yes. But because, um, you know, 
I think intellectually I was able to cope, right? And I decided to create my own coping mechanisms for, for, for many years. It didn't affect me. Um, you know, when I when I first got diagnosed, the reason I went for a diagnosis is because, you know, I had always been pretty successful, whether it was academics, whether it was, it was athletics. You know, I played, I I earned a Division One football scholarship. I played Division One football, you know, oh, um, you know, I, you know, whether it was in my career, you know, I always, you know, excelled and I always did more and I always did more to make sure I excelled beyond other people, you know, so, so it was interesting to, because when it came to a point where like all of a sudden that what I, what I normally did didn't work anymore. Right. Okay. All of a sudden, like, like, the, it was hard for me to control like workload and be a successful, like I couldn't, like it was too much for me to handle. And so that's when feeling I, overwhelmed? I was feeling overwhelmed, extremely okay. overwhelmed. So that's when I started also feeling um, some anxiety. Right. Um, and I, and, and obviously I would feel some depression because of that. Yeah. Because I, because, you know, I was like, because it was it wasn't normal. Like I'd always been successful. Everything always worked for me. You know, I always considered myself a high achiever. Yeah. Um, but then it got to a point where all my coping mechanisms that I that I had created for myself to be successful no longer worked. And then that's when I went to my primary care physician. And then, you know, she asked me. She said, "Have you ever thought about ADHD?" And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And then obviously went through the rating skills and talked about that. And then you know, got some other, you know, assessments done and then got results back. And she said to me, you know, you must be a really bright guy because your ADHD is very extreme. Wow. And for for you to even, you know, be successful and to be able to maintain like family, you know, achieve what you have professionally, et cetera, because typically it, it would not be possible. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, I was, I would say, you know, I was very, I'm very, very blessed, you know, um, you know, I believe in, you know, faith and higher power. And I, and obviously, you know, I was blessed to be able to still, you know, be successful and achieve things right. in spite of my disability. Yeah. Um, How were you feeling at that point? Were you, I know you said like, it seemed like kind of a shock when she said, have you ever thought about ADHD? And then when your diagnosis came back and she shared that info with you, what were your first thoughts going through your head? Thank God. <laughs> and okay. like everything, everything makes sense now. Cool. It, okay. Like, like every, everything makes sense. Like, like, you know, I started putting pieces together from like academically my childhood. Right. And like some of my learning styles, you know, and then like, it made sense. I finally could, could like quantify what it was. And when it, and when I got that, I had a huge sense of relief because it was like, oh, this is what was like my challenge all this time. Right. And now I could begin to, you know, work on tools to help me, you know, um, with my ADHD. Right. And, um, you know, it's, 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 you know, it was great. I, I, I loved it, you know, and I, you know, at first, you know, when, you know, there was a discussion about medication, I was kind of like, oh, no, not that. I didn't want to. But then, Right. I did my research, had further conversations. And then, you know, when I started medication, it was like, 
it was unbelievable. And that's for me personally, right? Like yeah. everyone has their own, their own choices and decisions about, you know, medication. Yeah. But for me, like, you know, that along with, with, um, you know, with behavior therapy, right. right. was a great combination for me in terms of my ADHD and more so of the, of the self-awareness about it and, you know, how I can still be successful in spite of that. Yeah. That's awesome. And I love the fact I like how you presented it about the medication and, you know, at first you said no and then how it worked for you and it might not be for everybody. And, you know, you didn't jump right on it. And my big thing about meds is I feel like like you did like do you do some research on it, you know, and and if you're on it, I've met some men who are on like several different meds and you ask them what each is for and they have no idea. It's like at least know what these meds are for and and try to do it in an educated way. But I always also strongly believe that people should not judge people for the decisions they make because they aren't easy decisions. Correct. I mean, like you said, you didn't really want to. You ended up trying it after trying some other things and learning about it. And it's been great for you. So. I just get really frustrated when people go either direction, like super anti-meds, like I can't believe you do that, or or the other way as well. It's like, let's not judge each other. These are challenging situations and challenging decisions, and what's right for one isn't necessarily right for the other. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's, that's, it's key, you know, and that's, that's the thing about it, you know. Everything is, should be individualized, right? And, and we know that, yes, you know, there are generalizations when it comes to diagnosis of of any type of mental illness. However, we also know that everyone's you know um, chemical and body and body chemistry is unique. So even though you could have a you know a, a, the same diagnosis as someone you know right next sitting right next to you, the way in which your body responds to medication or does not respond to medication could vary. And even the type of medication that, that, that you're prescribed. Right. So I think, you know, I just say to, to everyone, you know, whatever it is, right. Be very, be very diligent in terms of, you know, really doing your homework, doing your research. You know, I, I even, you know, what another thing is that, you know, for me as, as, as an African-American man, I also, Anytime it has to do with medication, I ask, what is this? What are the side effects for my particular demographic? Right. Yeah. Because that's something else that we all we have to fit, we have to put in mind is that, you know, even though it says, you know, this these are the side effects or potential side effects for anyone or then it says for men, there's there are also specific things that have to do with your demographic and your background that oftentimes we don't ask those questions. And I, and in my roles over the years as being, you know, overseeing special education, you know, that would be a question specifically when I, when I would work with families of color, you know, African-American, Latino, and, you know, typically they may not be in favor of medication, but I would always give them the advice, do your research, right? Ask the questions to 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 your doctor for your child, and then ask for and then also go deeper and ask specific questions based upon your race, ethnicity, and potential side effects. Um, and what does the research say about that? Yeah, that's awesome advice, and and I really understand and try to have a lot of empathy for the folks, the parents who are considering medications for their kids, because I know yeah. that's a difficult choice, and their brains are still you know developing. 
and I have seen meds do wonders for some kids and some kids who are who literally, I mean, they know and they want their medication because they know how much better they do and they know they can focus. They know they're not lashing out physically even from some of the ADHD uh, and different, you know, different ways that it manifests in the kids. So it can be incredibly great. And then it doesn't always, it's not necessarily the best fit for every kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so you walked out of there, it sounds like, like it was great. Like, all right, I have something to wrap my hands around. This makes yeah. sense to me now. I can kind of understand what's been going on and I can start to address it and improve it because I know what it is. So when did depression and anxiety become diagnoses as well? Right. You know, I, that, a little bit later, you know, um, you know, and I, but I, I would say it was, it was like, it was probably coexisting and it was evident, but in terms of the actual diagnosis, you know, around similar time. And, you know, I, and for me, what I, what I, what I learned about myself is that, you know, as I said earlier, I always was an overachiever, right? I always, always wanted to do more, felt I needed to do more. You know, my parents always told me you have to be better than you have to do more. So anything I did, I tried, I I liked to challenge one, right? And then also I wanted to demonstrate that I could, I could overcome the challenge. So I would take on big challenges, right? And because of that, you know, a lot of, as I, you know, realizes, you know, one, yeah, I'm doing well professionally, you know, um, having, you know, had a family, but like, I've realized I was always chasing something, right? Um, I was always moving, you know, quickly. I was always trying to find, you know, what was next. I was trying to always move on. And, you know, for me, that's a lot of, you know, me being, you know, anxious, right? Um, not knowing and I feeling, okay, I have to try to fix something or try to do something. And so I think it was always there. And then um, the depression, you know, I, I was first realized depression when um, I first went away to college. Um, okay. And I, and I, you know, I was playing sports, you know, playing football, as I said, you know, and, you know, um, at first, I thought it was just homesickness, right? Everyone says, oh, you go away to school, you, you know, you'll be homesick. But it was different. Like, you know, physically, my body felt heavy at times, right? Physically, I could feel a certain way. What and do you mean that, by heavy? Can you describe yeah, that? Yeah, like, sure. Like, like, like physically heavy. Like, I could feel like my body was weighted, right? Like, I could, like, that's how, um, you know, I start to feel as if, as if I was carrying extra weight. Yeah. I've heard other guys Um, describe it. And I think it's the same feeling like walking through molasses almost like, yes, kind of difficult to move. Yes. Yes. You know, and, um, and I think there was a couple of reasons why I first got into that depressive state. One was, as I said, I'd always been successful, but you know, I can tell you when I went away to play division one football, you know, I realized like everybody was good. Right. Right. Everybody was the best player on their team in high school, you know, and like, you know, for me, I I realized that, like, I really had to, you know, either work hard and like put the work in or figure something out because, you know, I couldn't just be, you know, the superstar, the superstar. It doesn't work that way. Right. You know, like you're you're 18 years old and then you have, you know, you 
you have men on your team who have been working out, eating properly, right? Mm -hmm. Lifting weights. And they're like 21 years old, you know, like yes. the, the body's just different. And so, and even just speed, you know, all of those things. And, and I think it knocked me down a little bit because I had never been in that position before. Never, never at all. When I played sports, you know, I had never been in a situation like, wow, I'm not the best person. Right. You know, I'm not, I'm not and like, like my athleticism is not what I thought it was. You know, if they were, I, you know, uh, you know, the, the people that I played with in college eventually went on to be, to play in the NFL. Right. right? So, right. so I mean, so like when you compare that, like, okay, these are, you know, and then, you know, there were other guys that I was friends with that, that, you know, were on the basketball team that went on to play in the NBA. So like when you look at athleticism, you know, compared to like, yeah, you're good, but like, there's a whole nother level, yeah. but you know, you're, you don't, you're not ready for that. Also, the other part is I had never been away from home. Right. You know, and, and I went halfway across the country. So like not only did I, you know, had to have a new experience in terms of athletics, but also in just just being on my own. Right. You're 18 years old. You know, I'd always lived with my parents. You know, they did yeah. they did almost everything for me. And it was like, wow, you know, I'm I'm pretty far from home. And I just I just couldn't like hop in a car and be home in like two or three hours, even five hours. I'd have to drive to an airport for for, you know, an hour or so, two hours maybe. And then I'd have to take a flight for about two and a half hours, three hours to get home. So yeah. it, it was a process for me. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, I started some some very negative coping mechanisms in terms of substance, right? You know, um, and that's when I started experimenting and then experimenting went, you know, to more everyday use in terms of alcohol and, you know, and other substances. And, you know, were you using hard drugs or are you talking weed? No, I was smoking weed. I was smoking weed. I experimented with some with some other drugs as well. Um, yeah. Never anything hard at that at that point in time. Right. You know, um, and but it was just, you know, I that was the first time that I had even experimented. Right. So yeah. a lot a lot of people, you know, in high school, you know, or even even younger experiment. But. I didn't because I was I was playing sports. Right. So like I never. But when I got to college. Right. All of a sudden, you know, it was almost as if I was reliving my childhood because it was the norm of people drinking and smoking weed. Right. right? And even though they were athletes and then they were still performing and I I kept scratching my head, I couldn't figure it out. Right. Because, you know, I had always been taught, you know, and I've been, you know, pretty much programmed that no, you know, athletes don't do that. If you do that, it's going to like, you know, it's, it's going to slow you down. You're not going to be a good athlete, but I'm like, I'm looking, I'm like, wait a minute, this is not at all what everyone had told me. So, you know, I think I, so, you know, in that, in that instance, I started self-medicating, yeah. right? That's why I first started self-medicating and it, and you know, so it, it was, was definitely, it was definitely to make you feel better, right? I mean, you were struggling, you were away from home. And, and like you said, like, I never really thought about that, but what a, what an eye-opening experience that could be so difficult for an 18 year old. Like you said, probably, you know, top athlete in at the high school level, depending on where you're coming from. Right. For many right. guys I'm saying, and, and as you described so, so well, you get to D one and it's like, like you said, everybody was a star at their high school. And now they're also 22 years old because they've been on that team for a long time. And uh, yeah. And I could see how, I mean, that's kind of my personality is 
kind of comparing myself, which is an awful thing. I don't think mm -hmm. we should, I think we should not no. compare ourselves Correct. to others, but I could Correct. see that, especially for a competitive athlete, like looking well, at yeah. these guys and then starting to beat yourself up, like, and yes. question yourself, like, oh, why am I here? Look at these guys. And, yes. And, yes. and then, so then you went to the booze and the drugs to, to yeah. self-medicate. Yeah. To medicate, to medicate, you know, and I think that's, that's, you know, when I first started realizing that, you know, like a, a substance or a chemical started making me feel better. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and I think my body responded, responded to that because one, you know, I had never had it in my system, but also the fact that, you know, it was, I did have an imbalance, right. I didn't know it at the time, right. but it did, you know, it did make me feel better about myself, yeah. you know, obviously for sure, for a short term, yeah. but it, you know, it, you know, but that's not sustainable. And right. I, and I, and that was the, and that was the first time that I had, and when I was in college, um, you know, I had been, I had been, that was such my pattern, right. Of, of using, whether it was, you know, it started off on the weekends, right. Like, like most substance use does. And then it became, Oh, well, you know, I'll do it, you know, maybe, maybe on a weekday, a midday. And then it became, then investing, you know, it's every day of the week. Right. right. Um, and to the point where I had a different, you know, uh, alcoholic drink, for the different days of the week. So wow. I would, I would ask that, you know, and, and, and what was scary was that, you know, during this time, right. Like my, my tolerance was increasing. Mm. So I wasn't having the negative effects. Um, and then also I was still developing as an athlete. So that was the other thing. Like now, now, now I'm seeing, well, wait a minute, it's not really slowing me down. And I was in the best shape of my life, but yet I was, I was not treating my body the right way. Right. And, you know, that's, that's how I grew a dependence, right? Probably, probably if I didn't, if, if I wasn't able to perform or even get better or like I had a bad reaction, it probably wouldn't work. But because I was still able to, to function, you know, yeah. for the most part, like it was like, oh, you know, I thought I was invincible until it got you know to the point where towards the end of my, you know, of my freshman year where, you know, it was such a pattern. I started really feeling like, you know, I didn't care anymore. And that was, that was the first time I had any type of ideation okay. um, in terms of suicide. And, and I, that was, I think I would consider my first attempt because I had, I ended up getting alcohol poisoning because I was just drinking one night and I didn't care and I blacked out. And, um, you know, that's, that was my first experience of, of the, you know, of the substance use and substance abuse. Right. Wow. Were there other football players, do you think? Was that fairly common for the football crew to be drinking and using drugs? Or were, do you think you were an anomaly? Well, you know, I think, I, you know, you know, even if we think about now, right? Look, look where we are in 2020 versus like 30 years ago, right? Now, for the most part, you know, marijuana is medicinal, right? right for in right. a lot of places. And also, like in many states it's recreational. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like, you know, if you, if you think about an era, well, maybe, yeah, it, you know, but, but then like, you know, it's college, you know, like a lot of people are, are, are experimenting, you know, right, that's, right. that's, so, you know, it's, I just think that it's that age. So, you know, if you have any, any 
any person that's probably between the ages of 18 and 21, they probably experimented, you know, with alcohol and or drugs at some level, even if, you know, even if they weren't an athlete, that was just, that was just what people did. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, for me, I just, I happen to be one of those people that, that I quote unquote, I'm allergic to it. Right. I can't, I'm the, I'm the type of person that, that can't have one or two, right. Or can't try this because my body, you know, does not respond that way. You know, I'm, I'm, that's, that's not for me. And, and the, and the scary thing is that, you know, and that you don't know that until you have to go through the experience of being at, you know, a worse point. Right. right, right. So I know like no one knows when they, the first time they drink a beer that, that they, that they have a, you know, proclivity to, to be an alcoholic, right. or the first time that they, that they, you know, try marijuana or any other drug or a hard drug, you know, to think that, Oh, this one time I could be hooked and I could become an addict. You don't know. So that's, that's the, that's the thing about, you know, experimenting with any type of chemicals or substances especially if you already have a proclivity to that and you also have, you know, you know, if you have a chemical imbalance, you're taking a very, very big risk. Yeah, absolutely. I think my question around athletes was in my mind, I envision like D one athletes as being kind of how you were in high school. Like you don't want to mess with the stuff because it'll mess up your game. And also just the strictness of if a coach finds out you were out partying last night, you know, just, having strict guidelines and rules, which I'm sure I would imagine many break. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, you take a, it's a risk, right? It's a risk. So I can say personally for me, um, even though I knew that they would drug test, right. It was a risk. Right. And, and, you know, I'm not going to talk too much about, but I can tell you this, like, like when you have to take a drug test for the NCAA, especially at division one level, right? It's not like when you go to the doctor's office and they put a cup, you know, give you a cup, or whatever in the right. bathroom, then you're in there by yourself. There's someone watching you, right? Like, like they're right in the stall with you yeah. because they don't want you to cheat. So it's not, it's not one of those things like all those, like if people are watching television or whatever, even they, if you think, Oh, you're going to, you're going to sneak something in and, and do it. It's not happening. Right. They're, they're right. literally watching you go to the bathroom and, and you know, go on the cup. You're not you know, going you're not gonna be able to pull out a jar of your buddy's pee. No, that's not <laughs> happening. That's that's not there's there there's no way that's happening. Yeah, right. Wow. So the drinking got extreme. You made it sound like you you were drinking to the point of not even caring if you survived. Right. Um, at the end of your freshman year, did sophomore year get better? And were you still maintaining you know, this? You know, you know what I, I, you know, eventually transferred and I, and I came home and played it, played at the, um, you know, junior college level. And, um, you know, I would probably say looking back in terms of a, in terms of an athletic and a academic decision, it wasn't the best, but you know what? It was comfort for me. Right. So, um, you know, I made a decision as a 19 year old, you know, as a teenager, um, because of what I, what I, because I wanted to be comfortable, right. I wanted to go back into old, you know, into something that was familiar with me. And, you know, once again, wasn't, you know, I wasn't ready to be focused. You know, I, I basically picked up where I left off. The only difference was instead of being, you know, halfway across the country, I was pretty much in my backyard. 
but right. but the same habits, the same <laughs> same substance habits, same abuse. Habits. Were you yeah. living? You weren't living at home. No, no, okay. no. This is the first time I had my own apartment. Okay. Um. So you know, I had roommates, and you know, and that, and um, you know, once again, like those, some of those things that you know that that I did, you know, looking back, and also you know, carrying me through. Right. I was I was basically training my body to eventually you know, get to a point where I was dependent on a substance right. or substances. Um, so, you know, and that's, and, and I think that is just, you know, my body's response, you know, and, and for a lot of things, because as a, as a person who, you know, has a history of mental illness in their family, right. And also a history of substance abuse, right. I was already playing with fire. Right. Right. So, you know, at any time in my adulthood, it was only a matter of time based upon my habits, you know, and what I was doing that that it would catch up to me and it would manifest itself um, to a point where, you know, I couldn't I couldn't control. Right. And was that how you finished off college, sophomore, junior well, year, still abusing and. And you were know, there more depressive bouts? You know, I think I think the depressive bouts, um, you know, probably manifest itself more in terms of like when I got into fatherhood. Okay. Um, and the anxiety because you know, as I as I talked about, you know, kind of before, right? As as a as a parent, right? You always want better for your children. Yeah. Right. You always want better than what you had. Um, better than your living situation, better, better life experiences to be able to have opportunities that you didn't have. Right. And as, and as a, as a father, right. Typically most, most men are either trying to live up to their father's expectations or be the exact opposite of their father. Right. 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 And I, I and that's, and that's truth. Right. So, so, you know, so when you put yourself in that situation, now you're always having this, this angst, right. About you don't want to be like your father and certain for certain things and other times, right. You're trying to live up. So either way, it's either, it's either potentially, you know, having um, an anxious state or a depressive state. Right. Right. Um, so either way, there's, there's this pressure, and, you know, if you don't have the skills to navigate that, right, eventually that kind of comes to a head. So as a as a, I think as a father, my thing was, you know, I wanted to make sure my my children didn't have the experiences that I had. Right. I didn't want them. I didn't want them to have to know what it's like, you know, to have situations where, you know, um, you know, the electricity is not on or the phone is not you know, on or, you know, what have you, you know, and, and I also tried my best. Right. I did not want them to live in the state that I that I did, you know, in terms of having a parent that, you know, was was using. Right. However, you know, right, there's you know, if you don't take the proper steps to do that, you don't realize it, right? Because but what happens is, you know, you eventually find yourself in a similar situation. And um I think that was a lot of it for me was, you know, I never I was trying so hard not to do to do better that you know i often push myself to to limits where i didn't really think about self-care 
right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, that for me, I think was kind of how my, how a lot of my, you know, mental illness kind of manifested um, was, was because, and, and it became unstable because I stopped, you know, doing self-care. I stopped taking care of myself, you know, um, I'm a giver by nature, you right. know, um, I always want to take care of people, you know, I'm, 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 I'm an empath. So like for me, you know, I'd rather see other people be in a good state than, than me. Right. right? I'd rather, you know, if I had my last, I'd rather give it to someone else mm -hmm. than worry about myself, right. which, you know, is very noble at times. But then when it becomes <clears throat> a way that you lead your life, you, you forget about the fact that you have to take care of yourself first yeah. if you want to be the best for other people. Absolutely. And then you end up, you know, and what, what ends up happening is that you start spreading yourself thin. Yeah. Right. Um, and you can you know, only go it, for so long like that. That's, that's on an it, empty man. tank. Yeah. Were you still abusing drugs or alcohol when you had your child? Oh yeah, I was still I was still using. Uh -huh. I was still using. Yeah, I was still using. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, it's like anything else. You know, I would I would, you know, because I was functioning right, I didn't see myself as having a problem. Right. right. I thought I was functioning right because I was, you know, I I was. I was doing well, like in my, in my field, in my yeah. profession, right. I was maintaining or I thought I was right. right, right. Um, so I would, you know, getting advanced degrees, you know, and then especially, you know, in our field of education, right. Like we're always trying to advance, right. What's next. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of what I was doing. And, you know, I, I thought because I was doing that and my family was, was taken care of, you know, I started viewing things like, well, you know, my self-care would, would be to, you know, kind of treat myself to whatever, like I deserve to have a drink, right? right because I right. work, you know, this and then, but you know, what happens is that, you know, eventually, like you said, you can, all, you know, there's only so much of you to go around, right? right? You don't, you, you can't sustain that. And for me, you know, that's, you know, that's kind of where I, I got to, to points where, you know, that was kind of like hitting Hitting my hitting my bottom, so to speak, not just with the substance abuse, but just with the mental health, because, you know, it was it was like this cycle of of working really hard. Right. Not taking care of myself physically, um, not getting the sleep that I needed and then obviously not, you know, putting things into my body that I shouldn't have been and then still trying to, you know, work, you know, to try to provide like, you know, your body just can't keep that up. Right. You know, you can't, you can't do that physically or mentally. And, um, you know, that's, that's when, you know, it became, you know, a lot of the depression or depressive states start coming in, right. Because you feel guilty, mm -hmm. right. You, you start questioning, you compare yourself, yeah. um, you know, um, and then, you know, the anxiety comes into play because it's, you know, you're like, well, now I have to, uh, bake up for, you know, time that I may have lost, and before you know it, you're you're worrying and thinking about you know it's all these what if questions. Right. So you know, and as you know, anxiety and depression run parallel, right? Absolutely. Like they're, 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 they're so similar. Yeah. They're so similar. Did your wife uh, notice all of these things, and did she ever question you about using? Oh, she knew, and she knew, and she wasn't happy. You know, she like she knew. Like I, you know, uh, my wife's a wonderful, wonderful person. I mean, I couldn't, you know, I. I I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for her. She's, 
you know, she's always been supportive of me and, you know, in everything that I've gone through. And, you know, a lot of it was, you know, for her, she wanted to say, she wanted to really know that, hey, you know, I'm here for you. She wasn't accepting always of everything that I did, but I, I you know, I'm, 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 I am very blessed to say she never, you know, gave me an ultimatum, right? right? Never threatened to take my children away. You know, never said, I'm going to leave you. You know, she just would always say, you know what, when you want to get to a point where you want to take care of yourself, you let me know. Right. right. You know, until then, what she did, she did her best and to try and basically trying to shield my shield my children from a lot of things that I was doing, right. you know, and also, you know, that. And, um, you know, I mean, and and I think the, 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 the biggest blessing is that, you know, when after I went through, you know, um, treatment and therapy and, you know, becoming, you know, clean and sober, you know, she said that, you know, it was so nice to have the man that she met back. Right. 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 You know, like, like to, you know, to, to have me back and to have me around. And, and the other thing is that, you know, like just little things, you know, my children, you know, knew that, I was different because I was, you know, they, I was, diff- became a different person. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the, the best thing is that, you know, I think having, ha- like doing things for myself, right. Not because, you know, anything was court ordered or like I was committed to, you know, a hospital and I couldn't, you know, you know, though, even though like my situation got to a point where I knew I needed to, mm-hmm. it was still all voluntary. which means, you know, to me that like, I knew I had to do something, right. There were obviously recommendations, but you know, when it comes to mental illness, right. And especially once you have a diagnosis or, or, you know, your mental health is, is not stable. No, you still have to be the person that wants to get the help. Yeah. You know, no one can, right. No, no one can, no one can make you, no one can tell you. And then you have to put the work in, right. You have to put the work in like it's, it's, um, it's, you know, for me, you know, it was probably the hardest and the biggest challenge in my life, but I'm so happy that it happened because, you know, um, you know, I'm a better person today than I, than I ever was, um, in terms of, of the person I can be, right. Right. The person, the father I can be, the spouse, you know, the, 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 the son, the uncle, you know, the brother, the, the colleague, you know, yeah. all these things that I'm able to do, I'm able to do because, you know, the, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, anything that happened in my life stemmed from, you know, mental health issues, right? right. It's like, like that, that was the, that was always at the core and the other things were just manifestations of that or, or trying to cope. And, you know, for, for me, you know, mental, the, the mental health aspects, you know, I'm one of the reasons I'm such a big advocate is because it's so taboo in the African-American community. Like, yes. we, like we typically don't want to talk about it. And then on top of that, you know, as African-American male, we really don't want to talk about our feelings. Yes. Right. We don't like it, it, man. That's that is, you know, is one of the biggest challenges that I think <clears throat> that continues to create um a conducive environment for the stigma to continue. Yeah. So I really want to get into that and I'm glad you're willing to talk about that. Um, but before we do, I'm curious was what made you finally decide to go in for treatment? 
it got to a point where where I was where I literally was 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 done. It got you know you think about those think about those points and people say, well, how did you know? Well, you know you know it it sounds cliche, but I got up one I got up in the morning one time and looked in the mirror and I didn't recognize myself and I and I got on my knees and I hadn't prayed for a long time and I and I asked you know I said I don't care what this means I don't care what the outcome is. I don't care whatever it is. I just, I pretty much surrendered and said, I'm willing to do whatever it is to get better. And, and, you know, at that point, you know, I made a decision, but I knew it was for myself. And that was, that was the best decision I ever made in my life. Yeah. And how long was the treatment program? Um, so I was, I was in a four week treatment program and it was dual diagnosis. Oh, great. Um, yeah, it was great. I learned so much about myself, right? And you know, the thing about the thing about you know a voluntary program, and especially if it's you know for mental health, is the fact that like your your life do- doesn't get too disrupted, right? It's mm-hmm. not it's not as if you know you are in a residential treatment program where you're away from your family and you miss you know all these other you know normal things or typical days. Like it it's you're, you're really basically going to class almost. Right. right. And so for me, you know, it was great cause I was learning and I learned so much about myself. Um, so going through that, you know, program and like, and like understanding truly like mental health and my mental health, like it, it like so much made sense to me after that. Um, so much, I learned so much. It was the best thing I ever did. And it was one four week program. And then you, cut it all i mean you didn't have any relapses no so you know like for me you know i said it's just i'm just by by the grace of god and my higher power that no you know i you know if people aren't familiar with the process in terms of mental health mental illness etc you know it like it's not necessarily overnight in terms of getting into a program right there's usually some type of you know unless it's extreme you know uh to the point where you're a safe at harm, you know, at risk to harming yourself or others. And that's, you know, where, where like you can't be alone at all, or, you know, that's a situation like that. There's usually some type of transition from the time that you make a decision to, you can start a program. So for me, what I was just proactive because I knew that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do, I couldn't just, you know, not do anything during this time. Right. It's great that I was, that I, that I knew, knew I wanted to make a change, but you know, I couldn't, because I had made this step in this in decision to make a change, I need to do something. So I started going to support groups and meetings on my own okay. before I even got into, before I, before I even, you know, started my program. So by the time I started my program, I had had already had somewhat of a head start. It's because by then I was so much, I was so comfortable about speaking about my issues right. right in front of strangers i was also i was i was ready for that it, i didn't it didn't take me that that time to transition to being comfortable and being closed off i was ready to go hit the ground running um and really looked at it as another challenge to get better right oh that's awesome and so i do want to ask you you know you just uh, mentioned about the African-American community and mental health. And I'm sure uh, some of the listeners may have heard me say this, but 
I was in a three-week partial hospitalization program. I saw in those three weeks, people are coming and going uh, as they finish their three weeks. And in my three weeks, I saw one person of color, one man of color, and it was a black man, and he was there for two days, and that was it in my three weeks. I also still go to a men's support group for depression and anxiety every other week. And those groups are probably about 10 at the organization I go to. And they get together for a breakfast and stuff. Mm-hmm. Never, never a man of color. And, you know, obviously, <laughs> obviously men of color struggle with mental illness too. But like you pointed out, the and part of the reason I do the show is because of the stigma of, of particularly towards men and mental health and men, you know, not reaching out for help. I think it's it's much stronger for the black male. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the black community and, and African-American men in particular, the challenges about reaching out for help. Well, you know, I'll start with a couple of things. One is that, you know, in this country, we already know there's a health disparity, right? And there's a health disparity in terms of communities of color, in terms of access to um, appropriate, affordable, and, you know, equitable health care. So, so, you know, if we think about any illness, whether it's mental or physical, right? When there's, when there's a, there's a health disparity, there's discrepancy in terms of access and affordability, right? that means you're going to pick and choose when you're going to go to the doctor. Right. So there's a, you know, there's typically a reason why, you know, there are, there are, you know, a lot of physical ailments in terms of the African-American community, not all, cause I don't want to generalize, but what happens is like, it becomes generational the way in which you look at the doctor. Right. So you're taught, about going to the doctor the way that your parents were and your parents learned from their parents. So if you look at, you know, um, generational health disparities in the United States in terms of access to, to affordable and, and equitable health care in the African-American community, that really didn't exist. So therefore, therefore, when you, you know, going to the doctor, you know, is a choice in terms of what do you want to balance? Like, so do you want to go to the doctor and your doctor, you know, may not be the best or you may not have the money to pay, or do you use that money for something else and kind of let your, let your health kind of pass in that, in that time. So if you think about that, right. And you think about the way that, that, that you're raised, right. So even though you have, you may, you may have um, more means and resources, Right. The way that you are taught about healthcare is still within you. So the thought of going to the doctor, you know, is like, why would you go to the doctor? Right. Like, you know, just kind of tough it out. Right. Just kind of just kind of get through it. And here's the here's the other you know thing that I have spoken about often is that, you know, the the way in which mental illness and mental health started in the African community, you know, my theory is that slavery has a lot to do with that. And I'm going to tell you why, because, you know, 
the the idea of slavery in terms of chattel slavery, meaning that you are owned as property, right? So if you are in a situation in terms of generations where you don't have the same self-worth, you're viewed as property, like as someone owning you, right? You're, you're, you're given the resources that are left over. You don't know if you're going to live or die, right? Because at any moment, if, if you don't have a serve a purpose anymore, you can either be sold or you may be killed. You know, as women, you know, oftentimes, you know, situations would happen as well. And you're thinking, so now you're talking about stress, right? And then you talk about, you know, families being separated, right? Now you have anxiety. Or if family members are separated and sold, what have you, you think about depression and guilt that goes on. So you think of, you know, for 400 years in the United States, right? You have that, that, that system of slavery, right? And then what do you do, right? Goes back to, I talked about traumatic experiences, right? right. And adverse childhood experiences, right? That becomes generational. So now when you talk about the body's chemicals, right? You know, in terms of survival, right? And fight or flight, you're talking about cortisol, right? Adrenaline. Right. Those things keep you alive. But then when those situations like you're if that's they're not utilized, you're not supposed to utilize cortisol and adrenaline consistently. Therefore, serious life or death situations. Right. But if you but if you begin to live your life under stress, right now, all of a sudden you're using those chemicals and stress becomes a way of life. So now this becomes generational. Essentially, so the not, trauma response, right? Like yes, your, your brain is always it. functioning as if it's always, in trauma. Always, always. So then, that, right. Yeah. So then, if you have that, that's historical, right? And then you know what happens is, you know, you figure that how do we just push through? How do we get through it? Right? How do we just just think of not think about it? You know, get over it and try to push through. You're never really coping. Right. And then historically, even out of slavery, you still have situations in terms of discrimination in the United States. So now all these other issues are compounded. You're never really getting out of a traumatic state because you're still living with a lot of things, right. but you're just taught to deal with it. Just try to go through, just try to push through. And, and so what happens is that mindset, you know, then evolves into, well, I'm just going to try to push through my physical illness or mental illness is, a, is, you know, begins to have a narrative of being weak, right? Because how are you, you know, how are you going to let your mind take your body over and you're mentally weak, right? You push, just push through. And then even the, the, the idea of, you know, roles, right? Of man versus woman, you know, and what, and what that means and what, what that looks like in terms of even masculinity is often not seen, you know, you don't want to cry. You don't want to be in touch with your emotions. You just push through. So when you talk about mental health, right, it's based upon emotions, on feelings, you know. So therefore, there's not a lot of discussion around that. And it's typically, you know, swept under the rug. Right. And, you know, no one talks about it. And I would agree with you. What you said about your experiences were very, was very similar to mine. You know, there were a few handful of people of color 
that, you know, were, you know, were getting, you know, any type of, you know, programs for mental health, mental illness. Um, it's, it's still very taboo subject in, you know, it's 2020 right now, you know, we're just not willing to do it. And we have so much, there's so much going on in our community and has been going on, you know, and it's, and, you know, you can't just get through it. Um, and until, until we're willing to have those conversations and discussions about it, you know, um, we're going to, we're going to keep repeating this cycle. So when I, when I talk to other African-American men and talk about that experience, you know, I'm, I really am not ashamed of my past and where I was because, you know, I want to be a voice to say, you can get through it too. You know, right. there's, there's healthier ways, right? You don't have to turn to chemicals, you know, substances to cope, right? You don't, you can, it's okay to talk about your feelings. It's okay to discuss, you know, that you went through a traumatic event. It's okay. Like therapy is all right. You know, I mean, you know, we, we're, we're quick to go to doctors for some other physical ailments, right? We get a sprained ankle, you know, you know, knee, what have you, but like, Still, the idea of going to a doctor for, you know, the organ that's your brain, right? Like it's still, it's still so, it's still, it's still not talked about. And especially, you know, for men, right? For men and especially for African-American men, it just not has been within the culture to talk about that. But my goal as an advocate is to be a voice and to be, you know, to be able to say it's okay and 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 hopefully to encourage um inspire people to to talk more about it and try to try to stop the stop the stigma. So as a as a black man, you can speak to other men of color, people of color and share your experience and hopefully they see you as a role model. What about white mental health advocates and how can, how do you envision or what do you think are some of the best strategies that white mental health advocates can help make sure that we are doing our part to support men of color and reaching out for help? Sure. Well, you know, there's a couple of things and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a licensed therapist. This is just, you know, my own personal experience, but, you know, in terms of in terms of the way that the mental health community, you know, is they it's still not viewed in terms of looking at cultural competency, right? We talk about cultural competency and equity often in education, but not so much in the mental health profession or as much as, as we should. So right. in terms of you said, how does, you know, a practitioner, right, be able to to implement strategies, provide service to all to all people, all color, all races, right? And that comes down to understanding, right, and having the cultural competency, or at least working towards that. Because you know you have to be able to understand that there are some you know conversations or some methods that won't work just because of, of, you know, implicit bias. Right. Right. And there's no malintent behind it, but if, but you just, you also don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot more work now than in a lot of more, a lot more research than before around that. But I would definitely say is, is begin to become culturally competent. Look at, you know, find ways to do that, go into programs, you know, um, seek out, 
you know, some of those um, organizations that do that. You know, a lot of the national organizations such as NAMI, um, such as uh, SAMHSA, the Sub- Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services um, you know, so- Association, you know, like at the federal level, right, the federal level, they really talk about best practice in terms of uh, cultural competency, because the reality is, like you said, you know, practitioners and providers need to be able to provide these services for everyone. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand that, you're leaving a sector of the community out that may be in one of the greatest needs because you may not understand that. Right, right. So I, I even think about like the organization where I go to a support group and the founder there and I have talked about doing some work to try to get some groups for black men, because I think even if we were welcoming and invite a black man who we find is struggling with a mental illness, you walk into a group of eight or 10 white guys, it's still not going to be the same. It's still not going to provide the comfort level that they need to really open up. And it's not going to be as much of a shared experience because they will have lived with these implicit biases and, and outright racism throughout their lives. So one of the things I did actually just like two days ago, I reached out to another assistant principal I know who's a black man who I know has been dealing with some of his own challenges in the past with mental health and talked about him and his interest in starting a group with this organization where he would lead it specifically for men of color and and really even not even doing it at the foundation or the organization's location, but bringing it somewhere to where... Um, Mm -hmm. where there is a population of black, whether it's a black church where we start talking Mm -hmm. and then offer a group there or something. Mm -hmm. But that's some of the work that we're looking at doing just to, to really tap into that community and help provide support that obviously is, is needed and just really just not reaching out as they, as they need to. Right. Um, So that's awesome. That is, that's some deep stuff. I never really, you know, I do think about generational as far as it comes to different privileges that white folks have had, particularly around, you know, redlining and the properties mm-hmm. and the wealth associated with it. I never really have put that same perspective like you laid out so beautifully around the history of slavery and such and what that leads to and could still mean today as far as reaching out to the medical community in general. And uh, that's a really, really good point. And then how about, I know we both have a passion for the self-care that's needed and support that's needed for educators as well. Yeah. So, um, and, and particularly you know, even like right now, what a time to uh, highlight it as we're yeah. in the midst of COVID. I'm not sure when I'll be able to publish this episode, but today is April 8th. So we're all doing home education, you know, distance learning. Right. So tell me some of your thoughts uh, on the mental health of educators. Well, you know, um, that's, that's, a, you know, a big um, area of advocacy for me, you know, obviously because my own personal story and also, you know, knowing our profession, you know, the thing that I, that I frequently say is that, you know, we have to change the narrative in education. And I say that we have to change the narrative and remove this idea of martyrdom, you know, in our field, right? It's it because we're givers by nature and we want to help, you know, it's almost as if, We'll give everything to everyone else before we put ourselves first. And it's almost become a badge of honor 
right? Just, just to see how much we can, we can give. And, and it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's not that we shouldn't, but we still have to take care of ourselves first. And, you know, for me, I know that, you know, education is sometimes a thankless, you know, profession, but we get into it because we care about children and we want to help. And right. So especially now, as we talk about, you know, where we are in terms of the state of education um, due to the current health crisis and, and with COVID, you know, the, the idea is that before all of this happened, right. You know, the question is, did we take care of ourselves first, right? Did we did we think about that? Were we putting ourselves first? You know, and you know, you know, for me, I would say no, because as a as a as a profession, right, there's a lot of burnout, right? There's a lot of turnover oftentimes. Absolutely. And 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 it depends on where where you're an educator, right? Obviously, you know, areas where there's more risk factors, right? There's a there's a higher level of stress, so there's a higher turnover. And then also depending, you know, what your role is, typically uh, as you as you move up in the org chart, you know, so to speak, what happens is is that the stress level's higher. And the expectations are more to give more. So we got, you know, it's, it, you know, we don't always look at it that way because we're just, we're kind of in the moment. Mm -hmm. But, but for me, you know, I, I, I really had to take a look and, and, and figure out, you know, what was it that I wasn't doing that didn't allow me to be my best. And, and that's, and that's when I got in, you know, started to, to really think and reflect and I became self-aware and that's when I started to um, to implement what I call my three B's, which is my three B's are balance, boundaries and breaks. And they're they're really meaningful to me because, you know, they literally saved my life um, because there were things that I weren't doing. So the first B is balance. And that is, you know, making sure you balance your time, your energy and efforts um, into people and projects, right. That, that, that will reciprocate that same amount of energy, right. Because, you know, oftentimes we, we don't think about that, but, you know, we try to figure out how do we balance, you know, our roles as spouse, right. Versus parent. How do we balance our role between our immediate family and extended family? How do we balance between our job as educators and then our 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 home life? And you know, right now, as we as as we're in the midst of this, the balance is so critical right now because we're all doing these roles that we have simultaneously. Prior to this, we could, you know, put them in compartments. So you would have your life from, you know, your work hours, and then you could come home and have your family time. And then on the weekend, you wouldn't have to, to have so much of a work life. You could spend it with your spouse, your significant other, or your family. And then, you know, it would start all over again on Monday. But now during this time, you know, everything is when this is within the same period of time. So you're are you're trying to navigate and manage being parent if you have children, um, significant other, um, or spouse. And then 
you're also an educator. So you're doing your job as an as an educator and you're teaching children, you know, remotely. Um, and then um, on top of that, you have your own children that you may be providing academic support to as well. All within, you know, the daily hours that typically you may be at work. Right. So, right. So it's, so it's very unique right now. So I'm always very, you know, always try to put an asterisk next to um, the word such as e-learning or working remotely or remote learning, because during this particular time, it's actually working remotely due to a crisis right. or right learning during it's it's different. You know, typically e-learning or remote learning is planned. All the resources are there. Right. There's a schedule. You know, it, it's designed because, you know, you're going to do it and implement it. Right now, that's not that's not what's going on. You know, we're doing this out of necessity, but it really isn't typical e-learning or working remotely. Right. Um, my, my, my second B um, is boundaries, meaning that, you know, going back to what I said about, um, you know, really taking the time, you know, and trying to trying to do so much and spreading yourself thin. Right. Realizing you can't be everything for everybody. Right. Right. So it's, it's not so much about the boundaries of others. It's about adhering to your own boundaries and standing firm. Right. It's giving yourself permission to say no. Right. It's and it's OK, because, you know, you know, if not, even though there is no malintent, you know, there are things and people that will drain you. Yeah. Right. They will drain your energy. You know, they, they will until you say, no, I can't do that or I'm not going to allow that to happen. You have to stand firm in that. And as educators, you know, we don't we often don't do that. And that's the part about, you know, knowing the boundaries for yourself so that you can be successful, so that you can be the best that you can be for others. Yeah. Um, and the last one is breaks, you know, and and this is this really resonates with me. And the reason why I, you know, I thought about this, because this more than anything else, you know, really was something I was not doing, which. Um, contributed to a lot of some of my um, challenges and struggles with 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 mental health because I never paused, right? right? I, ne- I I was always trying to do what's next. I was always trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do? How can I do it? I need to do this, right? I'm always I was always worried about making sure my family, you know, was in was in a good situation that they didn't have to go through things that I did. I literally never took the opportunity to pause and just be still. Right. And, you know, for me now, I'm a, you know, I'm a devoted um, mindfulness practitioner. So also a lot of my, a lot, so my three B's come, come from, you know, mindfulness and practicing mindfulness and just being present because, you know, for, for a long time, you know, all those years, I really wasn't present. I was physically present, but I was never present in the moment and just allowed myself to enjoy what was going on and to be there. You know, even as a parent in a, in a spouse, you know, phys- being physically there is not the same as being present. Right. So, um, you know, it's rooted, it's rooted in that. And then also, you know, we, we don't take time out for ourselves, right? We have to do that. Our body and our mind needs time to re- re-energize, right? We need a transition time. And, it's, and especially it's so critical now because, you know, if you think about it, there's so much time that, you know, that, that we take to be 
to do things virtually. So there's a lot of screen time going on right now and people are in front of computers. And, you know, we talk about, you know, reducing screen time for children, but it it goes for adults too, right? For sure. Right. For, For an adult to be in front of a computer for six to eight hours a day in the same spot, the same location, right. And then trying to be intentional and concentrate on a conversation, you know, that's virtual, it takes a lot of energy. It's yeah. not, it's not like being physically in some in front of someone. And I don't think we necessarily realize the brain power that it takes to do that. So it's important that we pause and we take breaks and we and we build that in for our day as a you know in our schedule. Yeah. And in and, and the last part, you know, my three B's come from um, dialectal behavioral therapy. And that, and for those of you that, that, are, that are out there that may not know, that's also rooted in mindfulness. But it, it's the idea that, you know, it, things don't have to be an extreme, right? Everything doesn't have to be black or white. It doesn't have to be, you know, one way or the other. And for me, that's how I lived a majority of my life. It's either it's either you're either all in or you're all out. Right. Or, you know, and and understanding the other part is that, you know, people can still do something that is bad or a bad action or make a bad decision, but it doesn't make them a bad person. Right. Um, because I tell kids that all the time, right? And I will literally say, like, you made a really bad decision, but that doesn't mean you're a bad. No, you're a great kid. You just made a bad choice, and we got to fix that. We got to fix that, and that's and and you know, and for when I when I began to realize that and understand that, you know, in terms of middle path, as it's called, it helped me so much because I realized I was so rigid in my thinking. Right. I would I would go from zero to 10 in terms of, you know, sometimes my temper, you know, I would I would, you know, hold on to the smallest thing and try to like if it like a like a smallest mistake, whether it was someone else's mistake or my mistake. And I would hold on to it for so long and not let it go. Right. It would cause me, you know, more angst. Right. right? And it would right. cause me to be more uptight. So, you know, really, it's about just letting go. Right. And controlling what you can control. And just surrendering and understanding that, you know what, things happen, life happens, but like that doesn't define you. So like when you make a bad choice, you can't stay in it. You can't, you can't live in regret. You can't, you know, think about, you know, you should have, or you, or, or you, you know, that word should, you know, or could have all those things are what brings you to a potential depressive state. Yeah. And when you think about that, right, you can't you can't go back and change something that already happened. All right. you can do is learn from it and move forward. Yep. Well and you mentioned even others not holding on to others' mistakes too. And that the first thing that that made me think of was the power of forgiveness and yes. how much it does for oneself when you're able to forgive somebody, even more than how it benefits the other person. It just benefits you so much because you're able to let go and forgive Mm -hmm. them and not hold on to that anger about it, right? Mm -hmm. So those are awesome. I love the three Bs, and they all come out of some great places, too, where you've compiled them from. I'm curious, all of the three Bs really are talking about how an educator can manage and uh, manage their mental health and build their resiliency. Do you think that that school districts and schools can somehow do a better 
job of supporting educators with their mental health? Yeah, you know, I, I would definitely say so. I think it just in general, you know, the whole idea of social emotional well-being, right, and wellness um, is something that, you know, is not as widespread in my personal opinion as it should be, but it really is a foundation, right? We, you know, oftentimes we talk about educating the whole child, right? That's that that's a phrase we use a lot in, you know, in our field, educating the whole child. But, you know, when it comes to practice and implementation, you know, how often do we really do that? Right? Do we really look and to understand the child's needs? right to to determine how can we best serve them because that's our field you know we're in the business of serving others so like you know i say that because do we understand sometimes the challenges that that children have that may that may that may become manifested in school and how do we how do we address that right. or do we just you know all of a sudden you know assume that you know that we we write that child off do we do we are we to become so rigid because we don't understand or try to understand what they're going through and that's that's about the whole child piece and the and the social emotional well-being is so powerful you know and so you know my years in terms of being a, a leader and an educator and even now you know i always look at a stance that Social emotional learning is a three prong, you know, uh, process, right? Obviously, we we think about it for our students, and we talk about it. And there's obviously there's been so many programs that have been implemented. There's so many theories about about social emotional learning and wellness, you know. And uh, but you know, are we truly looking at the core and the competencies that are needed for children to be successful? But then the other part is like our families. Right. Our families and, and the parents that we serve as well. You know, how are we supporting them? And as you know, and it's it's critical, like, you know, what are we doing? Are we are we doing family community engagement programs, not outreach, but engagement programs that speak to the needs of our parents because and it's built on data? Right. Are we asking the right questions to see what they need, not just academic, but to support them? Um, are we providing them resources? Are we are we letting them know where they need to go to best help their child? And that's the SEL piece. And the last one is, is for staff members. Right. And that's that that's the educator piece. Right. You know, we all have, you know, mental health. It just depends on when it when it's stable or not and what triggers, you know, there are that that could cause an imbalance, you know. And it's so we have to be very mindful because we want those educators to be the best they can in front of those students to best support them and, and to be there. And if we don't work on that for the for the educators, you know, it's all for nothing because they're the ones that are on the front lines. They're in the we're, they're in the classrooms, right? And then if you look at administrators, right? Administrators have to be their best so they can support the teachers. Um, right? So if they, they if they can't do that, then everything that needs to happen, all the resources that need to provide and support doesn't happen. And so especially now during COVID, it's so critical to think about social emotional well-being for all three of those stakeholder groups because the world has been turned upside down, right? right? Um, this, what we have right now is trauma, right? We went from one way of life and immediately overnight, it changed yeah. and it was abrupt. And, and also all the inequities, all the challenges, 
all the things that, you know, that were going on beforehand have now been magnified right. and exposed exponentially. So if there was a so if there were people that were struggling with mental health and mental illness before, now the situation that we're in, you know, it's it's probably it's probably accelerated. You know, if people were dealing with substance abuse issues before, it's probably accelerated because now you're isolated, you can't go anywhere, right? There may be frustration, you're not used to being around all of your family members. Yeah all the time so all these risk factors are coming up and there are things that have not been addressed right also things such as you know you know resources for families right before you know maybe families relied on you know the school to provide free lunch or reduced lunch breakfast lunch etc snacks all of a sudden when when the students aren't physically going to school all the school districts had to adapt and provide meals for those students now, because that was their consistency. That was their meal. Um, so I think like now more than ever, truly understanding what we need as humans is more important than anything else. Like the academics will come, right? right. Like we, we need like all of that, it's, you know, it's going to come, you know, like the important part is, are we connecting with each other? And are we connecting with the with, you know, the families in the, that, that we serve and are we there for our students? So, you know, in my district in particular, we have started we've implemented a program that myself and another colleague of mine that does some um, international education work. And, you know, we are providing with sessions three days a week, you know, from eight o'clock to eight fifty five. So it's before technically before the start of this of the school day for, for the teachers in terms of e-learning. And we're only focusing on social emotional wellness. For we're, the we're, educators. For the educators. That's awesome. Because, because we strictly, we realize that they're doing so much and this is part of the self-care. How can we energize their battery, right? How can we charge their battery? How can we give them an extra boost to sustain this work because they're doing a lot? So um, we call it the alphabetic um, survival guide to COVID-19. And we go through the, the alphabet and we have um, guest speakers come and talk about, choose a letter and they talk about three words or phrases within that letter. And it's motivation, it's inspiration. They, they share their own experiences. You know, we have some folks that that were actually at the epicenter in China when COVID-19 started that, that, that have talked about their experiences. Wow. You know, we have some folks that, that, that lived through some hurricanes here in the States to talk about what that was like when school was shut down and the students can't go to school. So, um, and then we have some folks that are, that are mental health experts some folks that are, that are in the field of education, but really inspirational to just give that boost to the teachers and say, you know what, we're here for you. We understand what, you know, where you are, where you're coming from, and we want to just be a resource. And, you know, that was, that's like our gift as a leadership team to our staff, because even, you know, it's not, it's not mandatory. It's not a compliance issue. If they don't, you know, if they choose not to come, they don't have to come, but, but just being there, you know, if they need it, right. Because, you know, we don't know what people are going through. Yeah. Right. They're always not going to share it, but at least we can be proactive and, and, and say, here, we're here for you. We want to support you so you can be the best that you can be. Yeah. 
Oh, that's fantastic. What a great uh, great thing to, to offer staff. Have you found staff to be open to that? Are many people oh, showing up at that time? You know what? We you know, at first we thought we'd be we'd be, you know, excited if if we had, you know, half staff members. You know, it's been extremely extremely good turnout, right? People, you know, that's you know, you you kind of kind of you you know if you build it they will come it's right. that truly is that they you know and that's a sign that 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 you know they want this they need it oh, yeah. right um so you know it's we're, it's not like pulling teeth hey will you please t-? people are showing up you know look you know they don't have to be there but they're showing up you know ready to go 8 30 in the morning because because they, they want to hear what's next they want to get this um you know this this food basically to feed them and that you know feed their souls to help them get through this day and get through the week Wow, that's that's awesome. That is a really, really cool thing you're offering them, and I'm glad so many are taking advantage of it. So if uh, if people want to reach out to you, and mm-hmm. what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? And um, I know you do some public speaking and national consulting. Do you do any coaching for people if they wanted to work with you as a as a coach? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I'm, you know, I do, I, I'm willing to work with, with anybody that wants to, you know, to do some of this and, and work on themselves, you know? Um, and I would say this, I do want, I wanted to, I do want to, you know, give as uh, to put that out there. Um, as of right now, I'm not a certified life coach or anything of that, or that way, you know, but obviously based upon my experiences and what I'm able to do and provide in my consultation, I'm always willing to speak with people and to provide some, some, some advice, some tips, you know, some, some things I know that have worked for me that have been successful. And, you know, it's also part of my mission to give back as well, because I want to be able to help, you know, others, because I was, you know, a lot of people helped me along the way. So um, it's something that I do. So I will, you know, the best way to get a hold of me, I'm on Twitter. Obviously, that, that's how you and I connected. Yeah. And um, the folks can find me on Twitter at um, at Evan Whitehead, E-V-A-N-W-H-I-T-E-H-E-A-D-0-0, Evan Whitehead, 00. I'm also on Voxer. Um, if, some, if some of your listeners are on Voxer, you can get a hold of me on Voxer. Um, um, my Voxer handle is ew 0 and then I'll even give my email address too, as well. If folks want to get a hold of me via email, uh, my email address is Evan Whitehead altogether one one at gmail.com. And I will get back to you. Um, you know, I you know I do some a lot of my work um, consulting is with uh, Dr. Ruby Payne's Aha process, and um, you know I'm certified in in a training um, that we call Emotional Poverty in All Demographics. It's how to reduce violence, anxiety. Um, and anger in the classroom. So we look at, you know, some of those things that some of those traumatic experiences that that shape children, but also the training also focuses on adults and how adults, if they don't, you know, address some of the things that happened to them when they're younger, it carries over and specifically for educators. And, you know, when that happens, because, you know, the, the trauma is also comes, you know, can can cause the brain to be unregulated and the emotions are unregulated. And what happens is if you have an unregulated brain of a child and an unregulated brain of a of a teacher, right? You have that you begin to have that power struggle in the classroom and through the what we call it the emotional dance in the classroom. Right. And so so the training um we do that um I do that nationally. I work with school districts, nonprofit organizations as well. So um you know folks can 
can see me on the uh, AHA Process web website, and that's www.ahaprocess.com. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, I love the work of Ruby Payne. So, Evan, before we wrap up, I would love to hear from you if if there is somebody out there right now, a listener who's struggling, whether it be substance abuse, dual diagnosis, you know, substance abuse and a mental illness, or just in a very depressive state or dealing with high anxiety, what piece of advice or suggestion would you give them? You know what? Allow yourself to be vulnerable and, and, and remember that it's okay you know, not to be okay, right? That's, you know, we hear a lot that a lot, and it, it, it truly is, you know, um, we all go through things, you know, but, you know, it's, it's all right. And it's okay to ask for help. You know, it's not a sign of weakness. It's actually asking for help is one of the strongest things that, that you can do. Um, and it's going to be the, one of the best things that you can do. And just take that, take that first initial step to ask for help and then believe in the process and, you know, and, and just stay strong in that. And, 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 and hopefully, um, you know, it'll, it'll help out and help you recover and become the best person you can be. Yeah. Awesome advice. I think, uh, I think you nailed it too. The, the strong thing is the reaching out because I also know how challenging it can be, but that is really a critical step and so important. So Evan, I want to thank you very much for all of the work you do out there. I want to thank you for being such an advocate and an African-American advocate, which I think we need more of. So thank you so much for the work you do with the adults and with the kids um, as an educator as well. And thank you finally for taking the time to uh, be on the depression files. Thanks, Al. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, brother. All right. Make sure you stay healthy. I will. Peace and blessings. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.